Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Thomas Codry, a PhD candidate at Yale Law School and a resident fellow at the Yale Information Society Project. And we're going to be talking about his recent paper, Drawing Trump Naked, Curbing, Curbing the Right of Publicity to, per, to Protect Portrayals of Real People. So welcome, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Uh, it's all my pleasure. So I um, came across your paper on, on Twitter and really enjoyed it. And we had a nice conversation there and, and via email. And I was really looking forward to talking with you a little bit more about some of the interesting and provocative ideas you have about the right of publicity and its intersection with the First Amendment. But, um, you know, I wanted to address the elephant in the room first, right, in the title of your paper, Drawing Trump Naked. Um, at, at, at some risk, um, what exactly are you referring to there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it is a risky endeavor, but um, I, I'll, I'll try and keep it as you know PG as I can. Um, the uh, the genesis of the the title of the paper is uh, came out of a, a portrait that an artist named Ilma Gore uh, painted uh, back in 2016 in the lead up to the uh, to, to the presidential election, uh, and she uh, drew a, a nord, uh, sorry a nude portrait. Of, of Donald Trump, then candidate Trump. Um, and uh, this painting, you know, it, it garnered a decent amount of press attention. It was obviously quite a provocative image and Trump himself was proving to be quite a provocative uh, political candidate. Um, and these two things kind of came, came together in a very interesting way that was, you know, picked up in the, in the popular press um, more to do with the fact that this painting was kind of spreading uh, over social media and people thought that it was rather rather amusing, a sort of satirical um, uh, sort of piece on, on Trump. Um, and the, the, the reason though why I chose it as a title for my paper is because it really, uh, for me at least, it gets to the heart of what the interesting legal issue is that I'm trying to explore here, which is what happens when real people are portrayed in expressive works, in artworks, and uh, even in news articles and, and other sort of forms of public discourse, uh, what happens when these real people are portrayed uh, against their, their will, um, you know, without giving permission. And uh, uh, the, 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 the case of Ilma Gore and, and her, her portrait, which is, um, you know, titled uh, Make America Great Again after, after the Trump slogan, uh, the, the, the reason why it, uh, it, it, it's so interesting um, and why it ties into the right of publicity, which which we'll, you know, we can unpack a little more in a second. But mm-hmm. it's because Trump, uh, his legal team, uh, apparently threatened to sue uh, the artist over her her painting, um, and so it, it raises a very interesting question about you know how much power do people have to stop other people, particularly artists, from uh, from portraying them against their will? Right. So just to clarify, um, did Trump? or his legal team specify the kind of suit that they were going to bring? And did they actually ever bring, end up bringing any kind of, of claim against the artist? They never brought uh, a claim, um, but uh, Gore has sort of said in, in various interviews, and I actually had the chance to speak with her and interview her myself oh. as well, which was, a, which was a really interesting uh, uh, opportunity. Um, but her, her sort of team was, uh, or, you know, her, I, I, I can't remember if it was her directly or her gallery, but some somebody was 
contacted by Trump's legal team um, and basically saying that this, uh, you know, that this painting was done without his permission and that there could be legal consequences. Uh, I don't actually, she never sort of specifies whether, you know, the legal team used the words right of publicity mm-hmm. uh, or whether it was more just a sort of a, a thinly veiled sort of threat uh, to try and, and get some sort of reaction out of her. Um, but certainly the, the, there are people who would think that this could raise a right of publicity claim, even if, you know, and as the paper goes into a little bit, even if there was some sort of defense to liability, mm-hmm. the actual terms of the, the tort itself, the right of publicity tort, uh, most states that have this, this legal right that recognize this right of publicity, uh, a portrait of Trump would definitely be covered under the right. And then you might need to think about whether uh, there was some defense to it. Um, but but, but it, it raises a right of publicity claim um, just by its sort of very nature of being a portrait of somebody else, uh, presumably without their permission, if they're going to be threatening to sue. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense to me that a right of publicity claim would be the most obvious route for Trump's lawyers to have taken. So for listeners who may not be familiar with this tort, maybe you could explain a little bit about it. Like what is the right of publicity? Um, You know, where does it come from and what's it for? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with where it is right now, and then we can kind of orient ourselves with a little bit of history. But but the the right of publicity now refers, you know, at its maybe broadest to uh, it's a state law tort uh, that prohibits the unauthorized use of a person's name or likeness or various other identifying characteristics. Sometimes it includes things like an autograph. Uh, it can include voice. Um, and and the reason why I'm sort of uh, equivocating a little bit on exactly what it what it includes mm. is because being a you know a state law right, different states define this in different ways. Um, some states have codified it through statutes. Others uh, recognize it as a common law right. Um, but but uh, you know at its most general level, it is the right to prevent other people from using uh, your name or some other identifying characteristic uh, w- w- without your permission. And it has a sort of interesting history. One story that often gets told is that the right of publicity grew out of the right of privacy, or maybe the better way to put it would be that it grew out of the perceived limitations of a right of privacy. Mm -hmm. And under this story, the idea is basically that, uh, you know, uh, in in the early uh, 20th century, at least, uh, there was a sort of movement to try and have a right of privacy be recognized in a sort of Warren and Brandeis type model of a right to be let alone, um, a right to be sort of free from the public eye. Um, but that if you were already a celebrity uh, or somehow famous, uh, it was difficult to fit that within the privacy rubric because you actually enjoy being in the public eye to a certain extent. You are known. Um, it seems sort of strange to talk about your right to be let alone from from publicity um and so according to sort of some tellings of of this story the right of publicity grows out of the perceived limitations of the right of privacy because what the what the sort of celebrity plaintiff wants when somebody is using their name or their image uh in a way that you know that, that that they didn't grant permission for they don't necessarily want to be let alone they want control um, they maybe want profits, they want a share of, of whatever is being made out of the use of their likeness, or maybe they want to prevent the use altogether because 
they want to be the ones who are exploiting their image and they don't want other people to be able to do it. So that's, that's one story. But the reason why I'm um, sort of referring to it in that, in that sort of contested way is that uh, a, a very important work um, just got released in this past year by Jennifer Rothman, who's, I think most people would, would accept that she's sort of the, the current leading uh, uh, sort of scholar on writer publicity issues. And she tells a somewhat different story um, about how actually, you know, the right of publicity has always had these roots in privacy and that the right of publicity need not be limited to only famous people. Um, and in fact, that, that it could and should play uh, a more important role in protecting the rights of everyday uh, citizens, whether or not they they are famous, whether or not they're in the in the public eye, um, and and we can kind of unpack that a little bit because it it, it turns out to be quite important to to what I do in the paper. Um, but the but but the gist of it is that uh, all of us have some sort of right to prevent the unauthorized use of our images, um, and and figuring out the contours of what that right is. You know, maybe it will matter on some level whether you are. Uh, a public figure or not, um, but that there is some sort of inherent uh, privacy-based or dignitary-based interest um, that all of us have. And so the, the sort of the publicity and privacy uh, dichotomy that some people point to maybe isn't the best way to, to think about it. Right, right. Okay, so we've got this, this inherent sort of like uh, dialectic almost, as it were, between... Right privacy and and publicity and we it seems like in a lot of ways we talk about them as separate issues but from your description it sounds like there's an awful lot of of overlap between the two concepts and yeah I, th- I, th- I think that's right I mean one reason um, why a lot of people uh, want to separate out publicity rights from privacy rights um, is is I think a, a fairly actually sensible reason which is that um, traditionally, the right of privacy uh, was thought of as um, protecting against sort of uh, the, the 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 emotional harms that one might suffer for an invasion of privacy. And, and this particular form of invasion of privacy is is this sort of loss of control over one's own image, or the you know the feelings that you would feel if you were portrayed against your will um but but that really what was what was going on was that it was a it was a sort of emotional harm and the um the the rights particularly the rights to damages and the rights to certain kinds of equitable relief um would sort of flow from from the harm and you could get you know monetary damages based on the pain and suffering that you had Mm -hmm. or things of that nature, whereas the right of publicity was seen much more through the lens of property. And, and this makes some sense, particularly because, um, you know, a lot of states recognized this right of publicity as only being applicable to commercial uses of somebody's name or likeness. Now, there's all sorts of interesting things that we can unpack about what commercial means in this context, but just kind of taking it at its simplest form, you know, if, if, your, if, if your name or likeness is being used in an advertisement, for example, um, then, uh, then part of what your damages might be is the, you know, reputational costs, yes, and maybe some emotional damages, but really it's about the lost endorsement that you could have had were you to be the person who, you know, 
appeared in the ad with permission mm. and, and, and got a cut of, you know, whatever endorsement fee there would be or, um, or, or, or something that, again, is, is more kind of seen in this property-like way that is very different to um, the, the emotional injury that people traditionally thought about as being wrought by, by privacy invasions. Right. And that, 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 it's a fantastic summary, I, I think, of the sort of theoretical relationship between, between the two. And, and I'm especially interested to, to like focus on the right of publicity for a moment. I mean, as you say, it's typically characterized as a kind of property-like commercial right. But, but I'm wondering, in practice, how do people actually use it? Right. So when we talk about the right of publicity or when people invoke the right of publicity in a complaint and when courts decide right of publicity cases, what do people actually use it for? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think it actually really gets to the heart of um, both why this area is, is so interesting to, to me, at least, but, but also um, some of the real tension in the doctrine. Um, and that's because in a lot of ways, the sort of quintessential right of publicity claim is very commercial uh, in the sense that it, it arises when um, somebody, some famous person's name is used on an ad uh, as, you know, a, a, a not so thinly veiled way of making the product that, that you know, that they're trying to sell um, more appealing to the general public. And so one of the examples that often, and I, I also mentioned it in the paper, is a famous lawsuit between Michael Jordan and uh, a grocery chain. And this grocery chain wanted to um, uh, sort of honor Michael Jordan for, I think it was when he was maybe um, inducted into the, the Hall of Fame, or maybe he had just won a, you know, another championship or something. They, they wanted to sort of celebrate, um, you know, this famed uh, basketball star. Um, and, and they sort of did so in an ad that drew attention to their grocery store and to the, you know, the products that they were trying to sell there um, and, and did so in a way that was, um, you know, I would say quite clever from a marketing standpoint. They didn't, they, they weren't um, uh, sort of too brash about it. They said, we want to, we want to congratulate Michael on his successes. Um, they didn't say, you know, Michael Jordan endorses our product. They didn't say this hits his favorite grocery store or anything like that. It was just by the mere association with this famous person, they hoped mm-hmm increase you know some some goodwill towards their store or, or whatever else it, it may have been um, and so in a lot of ways that is the the classic uh, right of publicity claim um, but as I try and show in the paper and I'm certainly not the first person to to, to point this out but but I think it, it does cut against what a lot of people assume about the right of publicity um, it is by no means limited to these kind of purely commercial settings mm. uh, very often what we see uh, and, and I would say increasingly these days is the right of publicity being used against creators of expressive works who probably don't like the portrayals um, that they're seeing in movies, in video games, in cartoons, and in case after case uh, over the course of the last, you know, let's just call it 10 years or so, uh, we've seen plaintiffs coming forward and bringing these publicity suits um, against the creators of these works. And it really complicates what I think for many years was the prevailing story and part of the reason why the right of publicity was maybe allowed by courts to grow and grow was because there was some sense that, well, the tort is, is inherently limited because all we're really dealing with here are false endorsements in ads 
And that just seems sort of, you know, that seems fair and it doesn't seem to raise as many free speech concerns if that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent, you know, consumer deception and and sort of depriving somebody of big endorsement contracts. Don't worry, this type of a, a tort will never really uh, impact the free, uh, you know, circulation of ideas and expression in art because that's just not what this tort is about. Um, but as I try and show in the paper, uh, that that story, at least from my perspective, is uh, is sadly a, a misguided one when you look at what's actually happening out there. Yeah, so I mean, it's easy from your description there. It's easy to see how this how this sort of bleed over into a privacy like function seems to be taking place. And so far as the sort of historic conception of the right of publicity seems to be a sort of a way of, of divvying up the value of celebrity goodwill. But it sounds like a lot of the uses that you're talking about uh, stray into privacy territory of preventing speech rather than divvying up the profits associated with speech. And, and as you know, that, that does seem to raise some, some real First Amendment tensions. So what have courts tried to do to resolve those tensions? Well, the, the, the landscape right now in the courts is, is frankly muddled, to put it mildly. Um, we have a variety of different tests that have been developed in various different jurisdictions to try and square the right to publicity with the right to free speech. Um, and, and part of the reason why this confusion has really been able to take hold is that the Supreme Court has um, given almost no guidance to lower courts about what this analysis should even look like. So the, the one and only time that the court has waded into um, the right of publicity uh, was a, a case called Zucchini, um, which was uh, decided many, many years ago now in the, in the 70s. Um, and, and this was a case involving uh, a human cannonball, um, Zucchini, who, who did this sort of daredevil trick at a fair where he was shot out of a, out of a cannon. Um, and Zucchini's act was captured by a local news channel, and they aired the act on the nightly news, and Zucchini sued and said, you know, what are you doing? This, was, this is my act, this is my livelihood, um, and by showing it on the TV, you are, you're injuring me in, in, in a sense that um, maybe people will be less likely to come and see the, see the act, uh, or, you know, I want to cut off the, the, the sort of proceeds of the fact that you have portrayed me in this way um, mm. without my, my permission. And, uh, you know, we could talk all day about Zucchini. It's a really interesting decision, but, but for our purposes here, um, you know, the, the, the main thing to say is that the, the court recognized that states do have an interest in protecting some form of a right of publicity. Um, in this particular case, uh, the court sort of seemed to take pains to talk about how this was um, a, a, a broadcast of a performer's entire act. They kept using these words. It's an entire act. It's not, they didn't focus as much on, you know, using Zucchini's face or his likeness or anything like that. It was this sort of this idea that he was a performer and, and, and the entirety of what he did in his performance was aired without his permission. Um, but the court didn't really say much more about how exactly we should square this right of publicity, which states have some ability to recognize with the mandates of the First Amendment. And basically just said, 
you need to you need to carefully consider the balance and you need to arrive at a place that um you know that 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 will allow a right of publicity claim but not infringe on free speech and so that of course is no guidance at all really um and so what has happened is that various courts have have developed these tests and i'll, I'll very quickly you know nod at a few of them even though mm-hmm. This isn't the focus of the paper, but one that is particularly influential these days is the so-called transformative use test. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that test is that um, if the the likeness uh, or the you know the the, the indicator of somebody's identity is uh, sufficiently transformed um, from what it actually is in real life, well, then there would be you know First Amendment protection there. And the basic idea of that is. Um, you know, there's something more creative if you're transforming the likeness. Uh, it also is less likely to interfere with the uh, identity holder's ability to, to use their, their likeness in the way that they want because um, because it, it, it doesn't look so similar to what they do or it doesn't sound as similar to what they, you know, the way that they sound. So that's one uh, one test that often gets used. Um, others have focused on, for example, whether the predominant purpose um, of the of the use of somebody's name or likeness was to explain you know, these sort of very vague ideas of of, of why you were trying to use somebody's uh, mm. image, um, and then there have been other uh, standards that are much more speech protective um, that essentially look at whether what is going on is is actually a sort of a, a disguised um, commercial endorsement, um, and so really the courts are all over the place, um, and and part of what I'm hoping to do in this work is to uh, is to take aim at one particular form of inquiry that goes on here surrounding newsworthiness and uh, and and look at how that's being applied and then to draw from that certain lessons about um, in fact how the First Amendment should really um, you know deal with these kinds of claims when they're brought against the creators of, of expressive works. Right. So I mean, this is a familiar story in a lot of ways, right? I mean, this kind of First Amendment tension arises in the context of all different kinds of information goods from copyright to trademark to trade secret, you name it. But it seems like the sort of submerged privacy element still present in the right of publicity creates a new wrinkle in a way that I thought was really interestingly reflected in your paper. Maybe you could talk about uh, a little bit about how you try in your paper to engage with the the tension specific to the right of publicity. Certainly. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that um, from the very beginning of when, you know, Warren and Brandeis first wrote their very influential law review article about a a right to privacy that they felt, you know, did in some sense and certainly should exist um, within the common law. uh, One of the first limitations that they sought to put on that right um, would be that it shouldn't interfere with free speech. And the way that they uh, sort of envisioned that limitation on, on a right of privacy would be that, well, this would never interfere with the, um, you know, discussion of matters that are in the public interest. Um, and that all sounds, you know, perfectly, uh, perfectly sensible um, and, and something that is, you know, generally reflective of, of maybe what our, uh, what our views of, of the First Amendment mean in this country. At the very least, you, you know, you need to be free to talk about uh, public issues, uh, matters of public concern. 
um, and that no right of privacy should be able to um, to, to overcome that, that 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 right that we all have under the First Amendment. Um, and so uh, this has been a big part of of other privacy torts. So, for example. Um, the, the privacy tort uh, that deals with disclosures of uh, embarrassing facts mm. uh, deals with this kind of concept of newsworthiness. Um, you know, it may be very embarrassing for, uh, to go back to, you know, the, the, the person who ins- partly inspired this paper, you know, very, maybe very embarrassing for Donald Trump's business about what he did or didn't do uh, with Stormy Daniels to be all over the news, but I don't think anybody thinks he would have any chance at a at a privacy based claim saying, "Well, this is really embarrassing to me, and I don't want it out there in the public eye." Um, mm-hmm. The response would very swiftly be, "No, this is this is a matter of public interest. It's very important for the public to know, or the public is in fact very interested in this, um, and therefore it needs speech protection." So, so th- this idea of pro- privacy and and speech as kind of butting up against each other goes right back to the very foundations of the privacy torts. And so in that sense, you're right. It's not surprising that it comes up in this, in this slightly different variation of the privacy tort, um, uh, call it a right of publicity or call it misappropriation as it sometimes is is talked about. Um, Because again, there's this sense that the way that the right is defined, um, you know, you can't use my, uh, let's just let's narrow it. You can't use my name without my permission. Well, of course, that's absurd. If that were actually a rule that were 100% enforced, um, mm-hmm. society would crumble within two seconds. Like we all the time, we use people's names without their permission. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, in, in, in the news articles of reporting about things, I'm talking about everyday life. So mm-hmm. the tort can't possibly mean exactly what it says. Um, and so then it becomes about trying to understand what it, you know, what it, plausibly can um, can cover and and that is where um, you know that that is where this these sort of limitations on the privacy rights that we've seen in other contexts become quite important to the right of publicity as well um, and 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 how we you know how we understand its its limits right so one of the things I thought was interesting was the way you talked about some of these traditional theories of kind of first amendment values or first amendment carve outs to um, to to privacy rights in particular, uh, like a, kind of an educative theory or a kind of public discourse oriented theory and kind of highlighted the normativity of those in right. that, that, that suggested some limitations to, to them as a approach to protecting the kinds of first amendment values that we want to protect. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the way that I think about, um, you know, First Amendment theory uh, is that the, the certainly the leading First Amendment theorists they follow a kind of values doctrine case uh, sort of progression of thinking. So you identify what values um, the First Amendment protects or what principal value it protects, and from that will flow a certain type of doctrine, and from that doctrine will help you decide particular cases. And so it becomes very important to select the right value um, that underlies the First Amendment because it will have, you know, have those ripple effects down the line. Um, and, and these are certainly normative judgments. I mean, the idea that we can really know uh, what is encompassed by a, a phrase, um, you know, as sort of uh, open textured as, as, as the freedom of expression or freedom of speech, um, just by its terms, 
uh, is, you know, that this is not something that is open to obvious sort of textual interpretation. And in fact, the First Amendment, just as a, a bit of a side note, you know, is uh, uh, among the first, uh, among the constitutional rights um, that we hold so dear here is one of the ones that is sort of least frequently talked about in terms of, well, what, what, what do the words actually mean? Because, um, there are plenty of things, for example, that are covered by the free speech clause that aren't what we would traditionally think of as being speech. Um, it is also obviously true that not all speech raises constitutional concerns or not all sort of prohibitions of speech raise constitutional concerns. So, um, so, so, so this kind of complicates everything. But what it means, as I said, is that um, picking the, you know, having a, a theory of the First Amendment um, and, and deriving values from that will have uh, a lot of different effects for the doctrine that flows from it. And so if you take, um, you know, the educative model, um, which, you know, as I unpack a little in my paper, is this sort of this idea that what the First Amendment really is all about is uh, it's a very listener focused right. It's about informing the public, educating the public uh, about matters that they need to, you know, know and understand in order to be informed voters in order for um, self-government. Well, that sounds, that sounds very good. That sounds like it would be quite a speech protective rule and it is um, but it also has limitations because if all you care about is getting information out to the listeners it doesn't really matter who speaks or to maybe put a finer point in it it doesn't really matter that everybody gets to speak what matters is that the important things get said mm. um, and so this enables uh, certain types of rules if that is if that is what the first amendment protects and it is only what the first amendment protects um, then it might allow certain regulations of certain types of speakers or the amount of speech that everybody can do or the ways in which people can speak um, because if at the end of the day you can justify the regulation by saying well this the listener is getting all the information that they need or the listener is getting the information in the way that is most conducive for them to get it um, well then the first amendment is being satisfied there so mm-hmm. it can really matter whether you choose uh, you know more of a listener based model or more of a speaker-based model or something that maybe, um, uh, you know, honors, honors both speaker and listener. Um, and, and that, I think, is, uh, you know, as I try and unpack, that, that sort of tension within First Amendment theory actually explains a lot of the contours of the current doctrine in the right of publicity. The right of publicity cases have often um, seen free speech through this listener-focused lens and not paid as much attention to the rights of speakers uh, to be able to engage in, in public discourse. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that really struck me about that was how the framing really affects the scope of speech that's, that's going to be protected. I mean, normally I think we sort of intuitively think of the right to free speech as putting the burden on the government to justify the suppression of speech, uh, which, which leads, I think, inexorably to a kind of a really broad, broad right. But shifting the burden onto the speaker, as we seem to do in a lot of these right of publicity cases, really changes the contours of what, what the right looks like in a way that, you know, we wouldn't see in another context. So it seems like what you're pointing to is this idea that if you're using somebody's name and likeness uh, in the context of some sort of form of speech, all of a sudden the onus is on the speaker to justify 
that use rather than on the spoken about to justify its suppression. That's that's absolutely right. Um, this is a, a strange area of the law for many reasons, but the one that you just pointed to is perhaps well, the strangest of all. If uh, if a state were to um, pass a new law tomorrow, as in fact they they frequently do try and do, uh, you know, let's say criminalizing uh, re- types of revenge porn, that actually those laws serve sometimes very similar values to a privacy-based, uh, you know, misappropriation or right of publicity kind of claim. Uh, you want other people to stop using your image without your permission. All of these revenge porn statutes, for example, um, the, 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 the analysis follows traditional First Amendment uh, scrutiny, which is to say the government has passed this law. It, uh, it, it circles out certain types of speech based on its content. Um, and therefore, it needs to satisfy the demands usually of strict scrutiny, which is, you know, the, the kind of one of the main tests that you would use in First Amendment law um, to determine whether a law that, you know, restricts speech on the basis of its content, uh, whether it whether it can withstand constitutional scrutiny. Exactly as you said, the, the burden is put on the state um, to justify why a law that does that should be deemed constitutional, whereas in the right of publicity context, it has it backwards. Uh, there is this sort of assumption that uh, the right of publicity is legitimate and that you have a right to stop other people from using your identity without your permission. Um, but uh, it's then kicked over to the creator of the expressive work, for example, you know, the painter or the movie maker or uh, the documentarian or the journalist um, to, to, to justify why that particular use um, deserves First Amendment protection. And that, to me, seems uh, entirely backward when you look at the, the grander scheme of First Amendment jurisprudence. Right. So I want to return to talk about some of these like hard cases like revenge porn and deep fakes, which, which you talk about a little bit in your paper. But before we get there, I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your suggestions about how we might think more productively about this relationship between First Amendment values and the right of publicity and the sort of privacy interests embedded in it. Yeah, so um, I guess to, to, to build a little bit on what I was saying before about the limitations of a, a listener-based model, um, to me, the, uh, the, the, the speech interests at stake uh, they they begin to make more sense when you look at the First Amendment as guaranteeing, uh, to some extent, a, a speaker-based right, and particularly when it comes to uh, uh, public discourse. And so public discourse um, is a, a, an idea that really the Supreme Court has has developed and other theorists have, uh, have given various uh, glosses to it. Um, but the, 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 the way that I use the term, um, following others like Robert Post, who's somebody who I work with at, at Yale, but uh, also James Weinstein and other scholars, is to think of public discourse as being both um, the types of speech that are um, you know, essential to the formation of public opinion. So speech on matters of public concern, you can think about it as being uh, to do with the content of speech as being important. Um, but, but more importantly for my purposes here, there are certain mediums through which we communicate. Uh, this is a sort of a sociological um, uh, matter. Uh, there are ways in which we, uh, as, as humans, 
communicate with each other and form public opinion. And, and a big part of that is, is by recognizing the mediums through which we do that. And one of the mediums through which we, we, we do this um, is uh, things that we might think of as art. Um, so we do it through movies. Uh, we do it through music. Um, we do it even through through paintings, even though you know this isn't speech in the sense that anybody is speaking, and it's not even speech in the sense necessarily that there's anything written on it. Um, but we are conveying ideas, and we are engaged in in sort of the formation of, of public opinion um, through these through these mediums. And this public discourse model um, is is really important because uh, if something falls within public discourse then uh, there is case law to suggest that it, it receives a sort of presumption of uh, First Amendment protection that maybe other types of speech would not get. That's not to say that there are no limitations that can be put on public discourse, but it is the case that there are certain types of limitations that usually will not withstand constitutional scrutiny. And, and this really is where the rubber hits the road with the right of publicity mm. is that um, there are probably certain types. Uh, people often ask me when they when they you know hear me talk about the right of publicity or when they read the paper. Well, are there any times when the right of publicity should prevail over free speech? <laughs> um, you know, is is what you're really arguing for here a blanket rule that just says the right of publicity needs to disappear and go away? And mm. and and that you know. Uh, the, the 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 short answer is that can't possibly be the case because the one and only Supreme Court case we have was a case where speech in public discourse, a news report, um, was uh, was held to be uh, subject to the right of publicity and that the First Amendment wasn't going to block it. So we know that there must be at least some times when the right of publicity can prevail over the First Amendment within public discourse. But figuring out when that is is really the crux of, of the paper. Um, and so there are various interests that the right of publicity could be said to serve. Um, some of them, I don't think I buy. Um, uh, but whether I buy them or not is, is in some sense beside the point. But, but the bigger question is uh, whether they are the types of interests that we recognize as being sort of legally valid within public discourse. Um, and this is where we might end up with a, with a slightly strange situation, I would say, from, from what maybe some of our intuitions might be, which is that um, uh, it may be that within public discourse, we recognize that uh, uh, there can be certain incentives-based rationales, like were at play in the Zucchini case that I mentioned, the human cannibal case, um, where even if it's within public discourse, even if it's a news broadcast, uh, he had, there was some sort of interest that the state was furthering um, to have performers do their performances and put those out to the public that would be so devalued if even the news media could uh, broadcast the entirety of that act that the state has, a, has an interest there that overcomes uh, the, the, the First Amendment. Um, Whereas conversely, uh, usually within public discourse, we don't allow for regulation based on the idea that particular speech uh, harms somebody's dignity or hurts their feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and so here you have examples like uh, the Hustler v. Falwell, a famous First Amendment case involving uh, 
a, a sort of a public figure, Jerry Falwell, who was who was portrayed in a in a parody ad in Hustler magazine in very offensive ways, um, and he sued and said this uh, this caused me severe emotional distress. And the, the 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 doctrinal importance of that case basically is that the court said no, this is something that was within public discourse, and in public discourse, speech is often really mean. It's you are subject to caustic attacks, and uh, and that's just part of free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, while maybe publicity claims could survive if they are furthering particular interests based on giving incentives uh, within public discourse, even that that might be fine. Um, but but purely hurting somebody's feelings or being you know p- even particularly outrageous conduct might not be enough. Um, and that's where it gets very interesting with some of the the contemporary challenges that the right of publicity might uh, might be thought to address. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit in the context of your discussion of some of these, some of these hard cases, because it, it strikes me that what really came across to me in, in your paper was this sense that there are some kinds of speech which for a non-public person, the right of privacy would be an appropriate means by which to prevent certain kinds of disclosures or certain kinds of speech about a person. And yet, invoking the right of privacy for a public figure, someone like Jerry Falwell or, say, President Trump, just doesn't really make the same kind of sense. And I'm wondering, you know, are there contexts where it might be potentially consistent with the First Amendment to permit some sort of privacy-like invocation of the right of publicity? Or should we err toward rejecting that entirely? Yeah, I, I'm not certainly not willing at this point to say that we should reject it entirely. I think it's it's very difficult to thread the needle sometimes, but I think that there are certain types of privacy interests that the right of publicity could further even within this context of public discourse. So um, this paper, you know, certainly starts to try and take a, a stab at it, but I think it would require it's maybe a whole other paper to really, really unpack it. But, um, you know, there are um, uh, privacy interests, uh, I think, at stake when, uh, the you know, the revenge porn cases, I think, are some of the, the, the ones that come to mind most significantly, um, where if you are portraying somebody there against their will um, and, and you are sending, you know, you are sending them threatening, uh, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're sending out these videos without their, um, without their permission. Well, that might be a, a, an example where you're disclosing something um, that, uh, that, that really there was a, you know, such a, a strong expectation and a sort of a societal norm against sharing something like that, that you got from somebody, um, that, that maybe the privacy interests might be able to prevail over some sort of, um, uh, speech defense, but it becomes very, very difficult because you, you, you start going back to drawing these lines about, um, you know, whether a public figure maybe has fewer rights than a private individual, but ultimately, um, that is, uh, I, I happen to think that that is unavoidable in privacy law. Privacy law is so bound up in societal norms and expectations that that, in fact, gives the contours of what the 
right of privacy really can cover. And so to say that it's going to be context dependent is in fact not a slight on the right of privacy. It's something inherent about a right of privacy and that it is going to be context dependent and it's going to be based very much on societal norms about what sort of information disclosures are or aren't appropriate. Um, And so that's, that's something that I think the right of publicity is grappling with, uh, even though a lot of people think about it not as a privacy issue at all. I think that that's when, uh, that's when we start seeing that, that, that at its core there are um, privacy interests at stake in a lot of these cases. Yeah, okay, okay. So in a way, I think you actually kind of just answered this next question I want to ask in a kind of broader theoretical way, but I was hoping you could touch on it more directly because it's something that's been bothering me after reading your paper and I don't have an answer to it, right? So you talk a little bit about, about deep fakes, right? Or these, these pornographic videos where, where people put someone else's face, usually a celebrity's face on an image of, of someone having sexual intercourse as a way of making it look like they're in a pornographic movie. And I can't help but compare the idea of a deep fake to the painting that you're the drawing the that you of, of Donald Trump naked with which you start your paper. And I guess my my intuition is that <clears throat> the Donald Trump painting should be protected. But my intuition about deep fakes is much weaker. Right. I'm much less sympathetic or, you know, it's a struggle for me to get to the idea that that should be protected as well. But I don't know why. Right. 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 And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that tension is is really at the heart of uh, of the paper in many ways, because uh, I think a lot of people's reaction to why the Trump painting should be protected is, well, that's core political speech in some way. It's a commentary on Trump and, uh, you know, his bravado and whatever else. Um, There are certainly stories that you can tell to explain why that is valuable speech to be out there in public discourse or why it would be kind of crazy to think that the government could punish somebody for drawing that. I think a lot of people would find that to be the case. Um, But if, uh, you know, if some other public figure, um, perhaps a much more sympathetic one, uh, were were portrayed in a sort of a deep fakes video, uh, also to be in the nude, um, what sort of, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes a lot, uh, uh, harder to draw those lines and 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 it's not as easy as just saying well you know if it's a private figure then then maybe different rights should attach and and you know we could have a whole discussion about that but as you as you probably know a lot of these sort of uh you know from reading the paper a lot of these deep fakes are are also celebrities who are portrayed um uh in these deep fake videos and so you can't just draw a line between public figures and private figures as as one that that would support that intuition so um for me this is this is what makes deep fakes uh such a complicated one because i think a lot of people have a very understandable impulse to think that the law should be able to do something to remedy the undoubted harm that comes from them right so nobody i think is is discrediting the fact that there is a harm that is ruled by these videos uh, the question is whether you can nonetheless uh, uh regulate them consistent with the first amendment um and and my thinking on this frankly has has shifted uh from time to time 
um, because I have tried to figure out a way that that um, consistent with the doctrine you could you could regulate these deep fakes and 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 where my mind is at you know now with it is that that there may be certain types of outrageous um, dignitary uh, injuries that are caused by, or I should say there may be certain types of dignitary injuries that are caused by particularly outrageous uses of somebody's uh, image uh, such that it would take it out of public discourse because even public discourse where generally we think of it as, you know, there are no kind of markers of, of Queensbury rules. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you, you know, even within public discourse, you need a certain degree of civility in order for public discourse to serve its function in order for it to be conducive to the formation of public opinion. Um, but uh, to me, that is an extremely difficult line to draw and one that I feel quite uncomfortable with. Um, mm. So probably what you, what you can sense in the paper and, and undoubtedly what you can sort of hear from me now um, is that, uh, is that it, it's quite an unsatisfying takeaway for me. It's one that is, it is, it is deeply problematic to me to think that nothing can be done about these videos. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's very difficult to square it with the, the, the free speech tradition that we have that generally doesn't allow for regulation of speech in public discourse based on an idea that it harms somebody's dignity. That's just not the American free speech tradition. So that's very difficult to kind of get around that. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we, we ultimately can't get away from normativity in speech regulation, but the best we can do is just to be circumspect as possible about it. I think so. I think so. And I mean, one thing I would say is that, um, you know, when I talk about the issue of deep fakes with people, a lot of the prime examples that people bring up about particularly harmful deep fakes, I think can be addressed by related privacy torts or related sort of, um, uh, legal rights. Um, for example, if the deep fake were very convincing and honestly could, you know, trick people into thinking that somebody had done something that they did not in fact do, well, then we have a false light claim. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that you have been portrayed doing something that you didn't do that casts you in a false light. Now, there are certain free speech defenses to those claims too, but at least we have a tort that would maybe address something like that. Similarly, if, you know, the same would apply if, if a deep fake showed you doing something um, that was uh, defamatory mm-hmm. uh, or in a way that was defamatory, well then, yes, you would, be, you would have a defamation claim in part because people would actually sort of believe that you had done these things because of the, because of the uh, deep fake. Uh, or if uh, somebody uh, hacked into, you know, as happened a, uh, a while ago with hacking into various celebrities' phones and taking uh, photos. If you did that and used those images in order to create a deep fake, I think you would have a privacy claim based wow. on um, intrusion upon seclusion or something along those lines. The, the most problematic hypothetical that I'm even hesitant to bring up because it's, it's to me, it's just like, it's so hard and, and really unsatisfying, but I think it really gets to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Is the deep fake video that portrays, you know, the actress. Um, but before the video starts rolling, a disclaimer comes up at the front and says, this is a deep fake. It is fake. This is not the real celebrity. <laughs> now, if I'm the celebrity who's portrayed in that, um, that may give me some comfort because at least people will watch it and realize that it wasn't actually me, but it doesn't really go to the heart of why I find it so abhorrent that I'm being portrayed in this way. Mm. Um, it's the, it's, it's the emotional harm um, that is wrought upon me by this 
uh, by these images that are circulating. Um, it is the harm to my dignity. Um, but I don't know in that situation whether there can be any legal claim that could prevent that use that would be consistent with the First Amendment. I would love to figure out a way to do that consistent with the doctrine, but that is my challenge, is that I, I, I have had a very tough time thinking about how that could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Thomas, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really learned a lot uh, more about about the right of publicity and about your ideas in this paper from from talking to you about it. Um, I was wondering if you had any kind of final thoughts or key takeaways you would want to leave listeners with. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we are really at at an interesting crossroads uh, in the discussion um, because people, I think, are paying much more attention to the idea of privacy. Now, that is often in very different contexts to the ones that we've been discussing today. It's about data breaches or what's going on on social media or manipulation using sort of people's personal data. Um, But all of this, I think, goes to um, some really interesting and difficult uh, questions for our society that we're going to need to grapple with, um, which surround, you know, a distinction between public and private that really doesn't stand up anymore. Um, You know, the idea of what goes on within your own home, that's your sort of private domain and out in the public Um, well, that's public and that's anybody's business, Um, you know, it becomes a lot harder in a world in which uh, you can have so much data about somebody, um, you could track them in ways that you couldn't track them before. There are all sorts of ways in which um, maybe we might need to have some privacy in public. And yet at the same time, maybe why even in private, um, some things about us, um, you know, don't need to remain uh, totally private. And so we're at a really interesting moment. And and for me, at least, the right of publicity is one component of that. But it's certainly part of a much bigger, bigger question that we need to have as we start to understand, you know, how we can live in this, uh, you know, in the digital age uh, in a way that, you know, preserves some amount of privacy that I think all of us feel on some level uh, we need in order to, to, to you know, function as humans, um, and yet at the same time to preserve robust uh, public discourse uh, in a way that you know uh, honors the, the the tradition that we have in this country of, of free speech. And these are really really difficult issues, but uh, I think we we certainly need to face up to them. Great, yeah. Well, I look forward to reading your work in the future. I'm sure there's a lot more coming on this subject. Thank you. This has been really great. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, I'll talk to you soon.